Malachi 2, the last book of your Old Testament. Now, we are at a very unique time in church history, at, at least where the Western world is concerned. Religion has become, in particularly America, a multi-billion dollar industry. It's an industry that has often merged with the psychology field and merged with the entertainment industry and merged with various public charities to create a massive conglomerate, great deals of money changing hands, a great amount of nebulous teaching, and a lot of confusion, really, in modern Christianity. Now, at the heart of all of this craziness, you have spiritual leaders, men and women who have assumed the mantle of teacher and guide and claim to have the answers that will lead people to this catchphrase of a closer relationship with God or a greater relationship with God, various ways in which the term is expressed. There are pastors, there are reverends, there are bishops, there are rabbis, there are priests, there are teachers, there are all sorts of titles to describe these who claim some degree of authority on the subject of the supernatural. Some preach politics, some preach prosperity, some preach rules, some preach eternity, some preach a lack of eternity, preach all sorts of things. And for every one that comes along, there is inevitably people that go along with them. Inevitably people that are eager to hear what they have to say and are ready to follow what they teach. But in reality, when a man claims for himself, or when he claims himself to be a representative of God, he brings upon himself a tremendous responsibility. Now, this same responsibility that rests upon anyone who would claim to speak for God today was the responsibility that rested upon the Hebrew priest in the time of Israel. They were men who ministered in the temple. They were men who interceded for the people before God. And they were the men that were expected to know the word of God and to teach the people the word of God. Yet, as we recall from last week, looking into the context of Malachi 1, God condemned the people for their false worship in this prophecy of Malachi. And he takes a special detour in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 to remind the priests, to condemn the priests, and then to remind the priests specifically that they are representatives of God, and that because they are representatives of God, he has for them specific expectations, that it is not their privilege just to lead the people however they feel they need to, or however they want to, but they are accountable to God for how they lead their people. Now, the message as a whole is going to focus upon ministers, but we can extend this truth, and we will as we get to the end of the sermon. God has placed many of us in positions of spiritual leadership, be it a position in the church as a leader in the church, be it a position in the home, fathers as leaders in your home, mothers as examples to your children. These are areas of spiritual responsibility and we need to understand that when we have areas of responsibility given to us by God, that God has given us expectations that need to be followed. And so I invite you not just to think of this message as, um, 
as the natural extension of what it will be, which is to ministers. I'm going to preach it from that, that standpoint because that's what the Bible reflects in its literal nature. And we can learn something from that as we seek to determine what ministers we are willing to place ourselves under. But I encourage you to place yourself in the shoes of a minister as well as you think of those who you minister to. Be it a jail ministry and the men that you minister to. Be it a home be it uh, a, a job situation where you have the opportunity to disciple men in the workplace. Regardless of your role, there are responsibilities that come with the mantle of spiritual leadership. This morning, we're going to see three principles. Three principles that guide the minister of God. And they should guide us as believers as we determine which ministers and which ministries we are willing to learn under. Which ministers and which ministries we are willing to place ourselves under. It's going to turn a microscope a little bit upon Legacy Baptist Church even. Upon your own pastor. So that we can know as believers what is expected of those who minister to God. And minister to things of God. So let's look first of all the first principle that we see this morning. In verses 1 through 4. Leading others into false worship has severe negative consequences. Leading others into false worship has severe negative consequences. Look, at, look with me, if you would, at Malachi 2, beginning in verse 1. And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I have cursed them already, because ye do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces, even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. We recall, as I've mentioned already, the context from Malachi 1. The people, and specifically the priests, were accused by God of profaning his holiness. If you recall the outline that I gave you from the book of Malachi, you'll find that Malachi 2, 1 through 10 is still under this controversy of profaning the holiness of God. The people in their blindness, when God said, you are profaning my holiness, they looked at God and they asked, wherein have we despised thy name? God, how, how have we profaned you? How have we profaned your holiness? Prove it. Prove that we've done this to you. And he gave them two instances of that wickedness, if you recall. The first was that they corrupted the altar of God by sacrificing weak, lame, and sick sacrifices. They gave God second place worship. They gave God second place in their lives. And then second, he said that they displayed false no motives for their worship. We recall him saying, you say, have we closed, opened the doors for naught, kindled the fire for naught. Literally, God saying, if you did not have the motivation of being a Levitical priest, you would never, ever even kindle a fire on the altar. You would never even go to worship if you weren't motivated by some ulterior motive. And so he, he said, You're, you are despising my name through second class worship. You are despising my name through false motivation in worship. Well, now God focuses very specifically upon the role of the priest and the role that they play in the false worship of the nation that they had been engaged in. God tells the priest, this commandment is for you. Now the word commandment in the Hebrew is well translated, 
but perhaps it's not as well understood as we read it in our English Bible based upon our normal English usage. When we think of a commandment, we think of an expectation. If God is sending a commandment, this is something that he expects his people to do. Now, in this context, that's not what it means when God said he is sending forth a commandment. The word in the Hebrew is somewhat broad. It has numerous meanings. And in this context, we recognize the meaning is not so much what God expects of his people, but this is more a statement of failed expectation. He is highlighting the difference between what God wants his people to do and what they're actually doing. In some ways, this is an ultimatum. God says, I've given you expectations, you are failing, so this is my commandment, this is my ultimatum, this is my warning to you. This is God's terms. If you reject my terms, I will judge you for it. And so the priests have responsibility. They have assumed this responsibility by nature of the fact that they are representing God in his word. God says, now I'm sending forth a commandment to those who would seek to represent me. Let's look at that together. He sends this ultimatum to them in verses 2 and following. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to heart to give glory unto my name. See, the problem was not that the priests were sacrificing lame and sick animals on the altar. The problem was not even that the priests were worshiping out of obligation rather than devotion. These were symptoms of the problem. These were the symptoms of the root cause. Oftentimes in our lives we see this as the case. When we look around us and we see all the social ills, when we see uh, the, the problems with, that are our hot topics right now, when we see the homosexual marriage problem, the, the sodomite marriage problem, when we see the problems with abortion, when we see the problems with crime, these are not the problem. These are symptoms of the problem. These are the outward manifestations of the problem. The problem is sin. The problem is deeper the problem runs deeper than just the surface level issues. This is what God is telling them. That the problem is not so much the sick and the lame sacrifices. The problem is not so much the obligatory worship. The problem is that they are not laying it to their hearts to give glory to God's name. They don't care about God's glory. That's not why they're doing what they're doing. That's not why they're priests. They're not interested in glorifying God. They're interested in fulfilling their obligations. They have ulterior motives. The false worship goes even bigger than this though. It gets bigger than just their own heart. See, because when the false worship of one person fails, or when there is false worship in one person's heart, there's false worship being committed between that person and God. But when a priest or a spiritual leader is leading others into false worship, the consequences in that leader's life magnify greatly. See, he's not just stepping himself into false worship. He is leading others into false worship as well. And notice the consequences upon these priests who would not give glory to the Lord's name, who are leading others into false worship. The middle of verse 2, he says, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yeah, I have cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. He says he will lay a curse upon them. This word curse is the same Hebrew word that's found way back in Genesis 3 when God tells the serpent that that serpent who was this, the serpent that deceived Eve, that serpent was cursed above all cattle. That's that same word cursed. 
It's the same word that God used when he cursed the ground for Adam's sake, for Adam's sin. He says the ground is now cursed. It's this exact same word, cursed, that he uses here in nature or in the reference to the priests. And as God further specifies this curse, he says that he will not just curse them, but that he will literally curse their blessings. The word blessing meaning gift or present. God is telling them that every false offering of worship will bring new instances of cursing upon them. I'll curse the gift. Every time you bring to me false worship, I'm going to add a new instance of cursing upon you. You will have greater negative consequences upon you every time you bring these false worships to me. In fact, God tells them, he says, I've already cursed you for your false offerings of worship. They're already reaping the negative spiritual consequences of false worship in their lives and the lives of those that they lead. As he continues in these negative consequences of leading into false worship, notice verse 3. He says, Behold, I will corrupt your seed and spread dung upon your faces. And then he says, Even the dung of your solemn feasts. The tremendous consequences of the priest's false worship bear out in the lives of their children. Notice the force of God's analogy. By implication, he's telling them that their offerings... Those things that they are giving to him as a form of worship are no better to him than bodily waste, than dung. And he says, I will take the sacrifices that you are supposedly giving to my name and I will shove them right back in your face. And I will spread them all over your face. Very graphic illustration that should highlight to us exactly how indignant God is at these priests who have led the people into false worship. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not a trifle. My position of responsibility is not a trifle. The responsibility of pastors and spiritual leaders in this nation is great. And God will hold us accountable. He will hold us accountable for how we lead. He will hold us accountable for how our people worship. The spiritual responsibility is great. Upon spiritual leaders. And it should cause us to have discernment as to who we place ourselves under. What's the spiritual leader's motivation? Is their ministry one that is conformed to the image of God? Is their ministry bringing proper worship? Because if it's not, there's going to be negative consequences of it by God's hand. We need to recognize that. We need to take care. But what did God mean when he said that he would corrupt their seed? Now, this is a prophecy. Malachi is a book of prophecy. What did he mean when he said, I will corrupt your seed? When I, that that this, these sacrifices would be thrown back in their face. If we carry this analogy through, it literally meant that God would take the very elements of false worship that they were practicing and he would curse them with those elements. He also states that the false worship will have tremendous negative impact upon their children and upon their children's willingness and ability to worship God properly. So the curse not, does not simply affect the priests. It doesn't even simply affect those that are, are being ministered to by the priests, but it affects their children 
And God warns that a refusal to honor God will lead their children down a path of corruption. Now first, it's important to understand that this teaching falls into the Christian world that we live in today. The implications, the spiritual leaders of today's church and ministries are often guilty of false worship to a dramatic degree. We've talked about this in many different forms and fashions. Spiritual leaders focus upon the wrong aspects of worship. They focus upon self-esteem or numbers or charities or programs or emotions and they fail to lay it to heart to give glory to God's name, which is the purpose of the ministers of God. Glory to God is not found when the greatest number of people attribute their spiritual happiness to the God that we preach. Glory to God does not rest in the number of moral people that we have sitting in church seats. Glory to God does not center upon how full the giving box is or the offering plate is. Glory to God is found when the people of the church believe on Christ receive the Spirit of God, and then willingly devote their lives to becoming Christ-like and laboring for Christ's kingdom. That is when glory is given to God. And so as we make these decisions regarding who it is that we place ourselves under for spiritual edification, it is not a decision to take lightly. A man who exhibits the tendencies of false worship in his life will reap negative rewards of false worship in his ministry and in those to whom he ministers. As spiritual leader, it's my responsibility to make sure that the worship of this congregation is proper. As spiritual leaders in your own right, it's your responsibility as well. If I'm not giving glory to God, how is it that I can lead others to give glory to God? So when you evaluate any spiritual movement... When you evaluate any spiritual leader or any author that writes spiritual books or any Christian movie or any of those things, the key component of discernment should be their worship, the fruit of their worship. Is that spiritual leader devoted to giving glory to God? If not, then you need to beware. There is false worship and false worship always has negative consequences. Now, as we bear out the implications of false worship, we're going to continue and I'm going to come back to these verses in a moment and we're going to see where the corruption of this seed led. Where the corruption of this seed ended up as God promised these priests that he was going to. But before we do so, we're going to have a little bit of a contrast here. Let's contrast the negative picture of the priests of the day in Malachi with that of the Levitical priesthood as God had established it. And that's what we're going to see in our second point. Number two, leading others into true worship is blessed in the eyes of the Lord. Our second principle, first principle, was leading others into false worship has tremendous negative consequences. Secondly, leading others into true worship is blessed in the eyes of the Lord. Look at me at, at 4b. The second half of verse 4 through 6. We'll start at the beginning of verse 4. And ye shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace, and I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. 
The law of truth was in his mouth, and iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity, and did turn many away from iniquity. You remember the historical account of Levi in Exodus 32. Moses was with God on Mount Sinai. Because he delayed in coming down, the people corrupted themselves. They made a molten calf and worshipped that calf in false worship as Jehovah God. They literally erected the calf and said, this is Jehovah God. It was not them worshipping another God. It was them worshipping Jehovah in a false way. God sends Moses down to deal with the situation. He says, hurry down. The people have corrupted themselves. Moses goes down and he sees the people around this golden calf. And they're dancing and they're singing and they have corrupted themselves. He takes the tablets of stone, he throws them down, he's very angry, he melts the calf down, he makes them drink of the um, water that's mixed with the gold. Aaron, of course, he questions Aaron, Aaron shifts the blame, he shifts the blame to the people, he says, the people made me do it, so I took a bunch of earrings and gold, and I threw it into the fire, and it popped out as a calf when we worshipped the calf. So these tremendous consequences come after that, in Exodus 32:26, God tells Moses, command the people... Command the people that are willing to stand with you. And so Moses looks at the people and he says, who's on the Lord's side? If you're on the Lord's side, you come stand with me. And you recall the historical account, the family of Levi comes and stands with Moses. And Moses says, according to the word of the Lord, you need to pick up your sword and you need to go slay your brethren in Israel. And so they picked up the sword and they did exactly that. The tremendous consequences of sin. And God said, because of the faithfulness of Levi at that time, because they gathered themselves together to defend God's honor, for their obedience and for their devotion, they became the privileged tribe, the tribe which had the privilege of leading the other tribes in sacrificial worship to God. Now it's within this con- context that God speaks concerning Levi in Malachi 2, 4-6. through 6. God states, that he had sent this commandment, this ultimatum to them in order that they would know that his covenant was with Levi. What God means by this is that he regards his covenant of promise with the Levitical tribe as specifically to those who had devoted themselves to defend God's honor, to obey God, not simply with those who had Levi's bloodline. God then recounts the covenant, one of life and peace, And these promises given to him specifically because of the fear wherewith he feared God. So what he said is this. Because Levi and his people, his family feared me, I blessed them. Levi was described as a family who had the law of truth in his mouth. And iniquity was not found in his lips. One who walked with God in peace and equity and did turn many away from iniquity. So as opposed to the priests of the day who through their false worship were turning people toward sin. Toward these false concepts of worship. Levi was a man who turned people away from sin. And there's where the blessing rests. Rests in those who lead others into true worship. Who leads others away from sin. And that last phrase is the key. But the priests of Malachi's day were cursed because 
their actions, their false worship turned many away from glorifying God. Turned many toward false worship. The blessings on any ministry, just like the blessings on any person, are not intrinsically tied to what we do or to the way that we've chosen to worship except to the degree that what we do and the way we do it reflects righteousness, glorifies God, and turns the hearts of men away from sin. The standard is the same for any minister. This standard is the same for any ministry. If that ministry is not active in reflecting righteousness and turning many away from iniquity, one cannot help but question whether that ministry and its leaders are intent on glorifying God. Now, I've made this contrast. Let's go back to verse 3 for a moment and talk about this corrupt seed. Actually, let's, let's wait a little bit longer on that. I'm sorry. Let's go to our third point. Third principle from this passage. Our first principle was that leading others into false worship has severe negative consequences. Our second principle is that leading others into true worship is blessed in the eyes of the Lord. Final principle. God's glory will be vindicated through God's representatives. God's glory will be vindicated through God's representatives. Look at me. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore I have also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Have we not all one Father? Have we not one, excuse me, have not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? God first tells these priests that it is his expectation of them that they would keep knowledge of the law. That they would lay up in their minds the understanding of God's word. The purpose that God cites is because he wants them to have answers when those in Israel come and ask him regarding God's word. Notice that God's expectation upon the priests was not that they were able to please the people. God's expectation upon the priests was not that they would be refined or cultured. His expectation was that they knew God's word and could teach his word to those who asked. And notice as well the reason why God needed his priests to be men of knowledge. Why God needed his priests to be men who could teach the word of God. Because they bore the responsibility of being messengers of God. That's what he says at the end of verse 7. He says, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Now, did you know that the appearance of a prophet in Israel onto the scene was not a normal occurrence? The appearance of the prophet was not something that one would normally expect to be regular. The prophet who spoke by revelation the word of God was more often than not a condemnation upon the people who had refused to obey the revelation that they had already been given in God's word. Now we see prophets throughout the Old Testament that had other ministries as well, but when we really see prophets arise in Israel throughout the Old Testament was when there were problems. When the people needed to be called back to God. When the people did not know God's word. When the people were not following God's word. 
The prophet was a necessary minister of God more often than not because the priest had already failed to properly teach the people the word of God. That's oftentimes when the prophet would arise. And such is the case in Malachi 2, as God describes the priests in verse 9, who had gone out of the way, literally out of God's way. They had caused many to stumble at the law. Their apathy and false worship caused men to despise, literally, obeying God's word. We remember that from Nehemiah. The priests were so wicked, and we see it all the way back to, to 1 Samuel, that the priests, when they did wicked things, they were so wicked that they caused people to not even want to worship God. They despised it. They corrupted the covenant of Levi. They had taken advantage of all the privileges that God had given them and had disgraced themselves in the eyes of God. God had given them the privilege of living off of the the fruit of Israel so that they could minister in the temple, and they disgraced that privilege. God had given them the, the privilege of interceding directly between God and the people, ministering in the temple, burning the incense, the high priest having the privilege of going once a year into the holiest of holies, and they had disgraced their privileges. Finally, God announces that though he would not give him glory through Excuse me, though they would not give him glory through their worship, he would still be glorified through them. I've said this every week so far. If we will not allow God's glory to be vindicated through our lives, it will be vindicated in our lives. If God's glory will not be vindicated by us giving God glory, then perhaps it will be vindicated negatively in our lives because God will be glorified. Now he tells them, these priests, that as a result of their sin, they would become contemptible and base before all people. In the same manner in which he had, they had not kept his ways, they had been partial to the law, they had done these false sacrifices, they would be contemptible before all people. Now I'm going to con- connect some dots here that I believe are valid, but you are perfectly welcome to disagree. I am connecting dots that we don't necessarily find connected wholly in scripture but I believe that these dots are valid you if you want to disagree with me by all means disagree with me when is it in history that the priesthood of Israel truly became contemptible in the eyes of all people when is it that the seed of the priests of Israel was corrupted to the point where their sacrificial system was thrown in their face well if we recall where we are in history we're at the time of Nehemiah This would have been uh, at the time where Israel was under the captivity of Cyrus. They had been allowed to come back into the land, but they were under Persian rule. Well, it wasn't Cyrus anymore, but they were under the Persian rule. Nehemiah was probably in Babylon at this time, or he might have passed off the scene. The last book in our Old Testament, about ready to jump into the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Within that 400 years, as we remember from the book of Daniel... The Persian Empire would pass off the scene and Alexander the Great would come on. He would conquer. Greece would conquer a great portion of the known world. Alexander would die. There would be a few men after him. They divided the, the empire into four territories. We remember that from the book of Daniel. And then Rome began to slowly take over after another maybe hundred years of conflict between particularly the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, Egypt and Syria. Eventually, by the time we get into the New Testament, Rome had completely conquered. 
Rome was now in charge. Now, throughout all of those 400 years of history, there were two particular sects that came out of the priesthood. These um, two different wings of the priesthood, as it were, grew out of some of the corruption. The first was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of liberal priests, as we would call them today. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe a literal uh, interpretation of God's word. The other sect that arose was what we would call the right-wing sect, the Pharisees, extreme conservatives. They were legalists to the letter of the law. These were the two sects that arose, and by the time the Romans get on the scene, both of these these spiritual groups are interacting with one another. They're both on on the council, the religious council of the day. They have found some ecumenical way to work with one another. They have reconciled their differences. They don't believe the same thing, but whatever, that's okay, we'll still work together. That's where you find yourself as we get into the time of the New Testament. 400 years had passed, and yet at this point, there had not been any great contempt. The priesthood still had a pretty good standing in the eyes of the people. But this corrupt seed of the Levitical priesthood, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, all of whom could trace their origins back to Levi, that was a a necessary element of being a Levite, of being a priest, These corrupt seed had false worship all over the place. The Sadducees were falsely worshiping God through their sacrifices as well as through their their, uh, rejection of the word of God. The Pharisees had fallen into legalism and they were worshiping the law as opposed to worshiping God. And at that time there would be a man born among these Pharisees and these Sadducees. His name was Jesus. Three years later, excuse me, 30 years later, he would grow and he would begin a ministry. This ministry was different from anything the Pharisees believed and anything the Sadducees believed. The entire seed of Levi was mystified by this man's teaching. Three years after he came on the scene, give or take half a year, those Pharisees and those Sadducees would come together and kill this man. They would see to it that he was hung upon a cross. And from that moment onward, all history sees the seed of Levi as contemptible. The very sacrificial system which they claimed, this false worship system which they held to so hard, was thrown in their face when Jesus Christ came to this earth and reminded them of the truth of God's word. Reminded them of their idolatry in this false sacrificial system. And I believe that that is the day that Malachi prophesies here in Malachi 2. When the seed of Levi when this seed would be corrupted, when their sacrificial system would be smeared in their face like dung, and when the entire seed of Levi would be made contemptible in the eyes of all people, the day when they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, God in flesh, 
And as Pilate washed his hands of it, the people said, His blood be on our hands. His blood be upon us, the leaders of the Jews. Now the parallels and applications to be made to the modern ministry are clear. The expectation upon God's ministers is that they be knowledgeable in the word of God. That they lead God's people in God's word. God doesn't call ministers to build large churches. God doesn't call ministers to be adept public speakers. To keep his people laughing. Now every once in a while I'll be funny. It's not very often that I can manage to be funny from behind here. But that's not the purpose of a pastor. God doesn't call his ministers to be well versed in pop culture. So I can make connections to a bunch of different movies and a bunch of different pop culture elements. God calls his minister to know his word and to teach his word. He called the priests as representatives of God to know God's word and teach his word. That's the responsibility of ministers today as well. Likewise, we see many ministers today who have gone out of the way. They have caused many to stumble at the law. They have either abused grace and licensed sin, or they have shackled people to false standards. They have either gone legalistic, like the Pharisees, or they have gone liberal, like the Sadducees. The parallels are still there, folks. They have corrupted the salvation of God and have spurned the concept of their calling as ministers by their devotion to concepts, to theologies, to denominations, to ideas, to philosophies, instead of being devoted to the word of God alone. But like the priests of years gone by, we can rest assured that God's glory will be vindicated. It took 430 years from when God promised that God's glory would be vindicated for, in my estimation, it to be worked out through Jesus Christ as the sacrificial system was thrown into the face of these false worshipers. And there is coming a day when each man and woman who has claimed the mantle of minister will stand before God and give an account, not for how big his church was, not for how big their bank account was, Not for how good of a speaker he was, not for how many programs he built, but every minister will give an account for how well God was glorified in their lives and through their ministries. Now, as I mentioned and warned I would, I've spent spent this sermon focused upon ministers. It should help us determine the direction that we should take as far as the ministries that we place ourselves and our families under. But as we close, again, I'd like to make one more extension of application to us as leaders in all different capacities. Just as God has given me, by His grace, the stewardship over this body of believers to lead you into proper worship and to teach the Word of God in truth, so too fathers, husbands, chaplains, have been given the ministry, the divine responsibility of leading those who are under them unto God's glory. We have learned today that leading others into false worship has severe negative consequences. We've learned that leading others into true worship is blessed in the eyes of the Lord. We've learned that God's glory will be vindicated either way. May I just remind you that it is your responsibility, fathers, to lead your families in worship. May I remind you 
that it's your responsibility, mother and father, to lead your children into proper worship. May I remind you, those of you who have spiritual influence over others, deacons, elders, other ministries you're involved in, those who look up to you, you have a responsibility to lead them into proper worship. And if I may exhort us this morning to be ever vigilant, that we give God first place in our lives, as we learned last week, not giving God secondhand worship, not giving God wrong motivated worship, that as we are genuine in our own worship, we might lead our families, our churches, our friends into proper worship as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the responsibility that you lay upon each.